All right. We have been in a series as a church uh, in the Gospel of Mark, so I'd invite you to turn to uh, Mark chapter 11 if you've got a Bible with you. We've got quite a few verses we're looking at this morning, so I'm going to read these verses this morning. We're going to start in Mark chapter 11, verse 27. I'm going to read to chapter 12, verse 12. So here we go. Mark chapter 11, verse 27 to 12, verse 12. Then I'll pray, and we are going to look into this together. Let, let me say before I start, we love this book as a church, all right? You, you, there's no shortage of places that you can go to in Ottawa and hear about different things that you can worship. Even here this morning, you can go to different parts of this building and hear about different things that you have the option of worshiping. We believe that we have been created to worship God and that that is where we find our fulfillment. That's where we find our joy. That's where we find our peace, our hope, and we know about him through this book and by the help of his Holy Spirit, who we believe is here with us this morning. You might think, well, I, it feels like I'm, I'm, in a, I'm in a conference center and I'm in a, I'm in a church service. Well, that is true, but as the people of God come together, God is there with them by the power of his Holy Spirit. So when I read these words to you, this, this is God's letter to you. And I really want to encourage you to receive it as that. This is what God is saying to you and what I'm about to read. I'm then going to come and teach from that. But this is God's letter to you as a loving father to you as a son or a daughter who he loves very much or as a potential son or daughter that can be adopted into his family if you place your faith in Jesus. So with that said, let's listen to the Bible. All right, This is Mark 11, verse 27. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. What is the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. They discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And again he sent to them another servant. And they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and, they, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. Then they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Let's pray together. God, we recognize that there are things in your word, many things in your word, that make for tough reading. And uh, God, we recognize this morning that, that we're certainly in one of those 
sections, one of those texts. But God, thank you that your love is so great for us that you choose to say the hard things in an effort to rescue us, to save us. God, I pray that you would do that this morning. I don't just ask that for those in the room that may not know Jesus, your son, yet. I pray that for those of us that have, uh, at some stage in our lives, placed our faith in Jesus, but still are finding ourselves, and this is very much me, so drawn to other things at times, so drawn to putting my faith in other things, in much lesser gods. Jesus, this morning, would we all place our faith in you? Would we all trust you? Would we all come to know more of this great God of love who has ultimately shown that love to us through the sending of his son, Jesus Christ? I pray this for his glory. Amen. Amen. Well, I used to work in radio. I know for some of you, you'll think, oh, I always thought he had a face for radio. So that, that, that's a bit of an explanation. I used to work in radio out of New Brunswick. And uh, any of you who are from New Brunswick or have uh, been through New Brunswick, you probably can uh, imagine that New Brunswick is not exactly the epicenter of breaking news. And that's a little bit of its charm. Having grown up uh, on the East Coast, that's one of the things that I loved about it is that it was just a really manageable pace. It wasn't anything like Toronto or Montreal or Ottawa or Vancouver. Things happened at a much slower pace out there. So if any of you are, are into films like All the President's Men or if you've watched Aaron Sorkin's The Newsroom or any shows that kind of deal with like, you know, with hard journalism, you know, with the fast-paced newsroom. That was not the type of newsroom that I worked in out in New Brunswick. Uh, the newsroom that I worked in, often I would be the only staff member. I'd go in there at about 5.30 in the morning to start assembling the newscast. I often had the weekend shift as a, as a young guy out east. And uh, we had one computer in the newsroom. And that one computer, we didn't dare uh, turn it off. And that was not because some big news story might break. It's because if we turned the computer off, we would never be able to get it going again. We would have no idea what would be happening in the world. And there was one black and white, I kid you not, black and white small television up on a shelf that would flicker. And we had that on CNN all the time to see essentially what the real journalists were doing. <laughs> we would keep an eye up on that to find out what was going on in the world. And this is the newsroom that I worked in. And, and every morning going in, we would check the wires, the news wires, and see what stories were happening. And that's how we would assemble the newscast. And that was many years ago. I mean, when I was doing that out in New Brunswick, that was the better part of uh, at least 12 or 13 years ago now. But I'm still quite a bit of a news junkie. I still, when I wake up, one of the things that I will often do first is I'll have a quick scan of different bookmarks on my phone for news. And I read news from everywhere. I read the Globe and Mail. I read CNN, BBC, The Guardian, The Onion, news from the left, news from the right, news from the center, from the center left, from the center right. I like reading all of it to get a perspective of kind of what's happening in a number of different areas. And if you've chosen Ottawa as your home, as most of you have, uh, part of why you've come to Ottawa is because of Ottawa's position on the global stage. We're not as busy of a city. We're not as energetic of a city as, as Toronto or Montreal or New York. But we still, on a global stage, have a massive influence, particularly right now, I would say. So I suspect many of you are regularly scanning news websites and watching TV and blogs and all of these different things, trying to keep your finger on the pulse of what is happening around the world. And if you're like me, maybe you find at times that that gets really, really heavy. I mean, really heavy. Take last week, just as an example, just the past seven days, earlier in the week, another school shooting. 
And then as the week goes on, there was a clip that I saw on the BBC website of children's horrible footage, responsible for them to show it, I believe, but horrible footage of children being pulled from rubble in Syria. Tough, tough things to watch. Some being pulled alive. Uh, others, you know, in, in other situations where they wouldn't show that footage I'm out of respect for the families, but in other situations where they're not being pulled alive. And then as the week goes on, all of the sexual scandals that seem to be happening, and a lot of that uh, being driven largely out of Ottawa, just a few steps over that way. And then uh, just a couple days ago, or was it yesterday actually, in fact, I don't think it was a couple days ago, the ambulance bombing attack uh, that happened in Kabul. I woke up this morning, the number had risen overnight, I woke up this morning and it said that the death toll was now over 100 people. It's tough. It's tough being aware of what's going on in the world. Now, there are different schools of thought out there about it. I mean, I remember when I worked in the newsroom, it would be, it would be a rare time where there would be a, a, a significant kind of catastrophe of the scale of what I've just mentioned, of which in the past week there are you know, three or four Probably Now, is that because things are getting worse in the world, or is it because every single one of us, you know, with these in our pockets, where we all have the power to be journalists, don't we? If there's an event, good or bad, going on around us, out comes the phone, and, and we document it. You know, 15, 20 years ago, that was not possible anywhere near the same way it is now. So what is it? Is it more bad things are happening now, or is it that we have more ways to document what is happening now? Well, I don't know. There are different theories out there, but what I do know is this. A lot of it makes for really tough watching. A lot of it makes for really tough reading. Now, it's at this stage that most of us, in our, in our attempt to reconcile these things, as we're watching it, as we're coming across many of these tragic stories, that we divide people in the world into two categories. And they're the exact same categories that we were first introduced to when we were children. I'm old enough to remember that there was a time when you wouldn't be able, even as a child, to binge watch Netflix. I remember getting up on Saturday mornings, and that's when children's television was on. It was on Saturday mornings. And even then, that's when I was first introduced to the idea in the world that there are essentially good people and bad people. There are good guys and there are bad guys. And the good guys are the heroes, and the bad guys are the bad guys, and the good guys try to be the bad guys, and and that's what the world looks like. But as we grow up, we realize that the world is more complicated than that, don't we? As we grow up, we realize that sometimes the good guys or the good women can be the bad guys or the bad women. And we realize also the people that we think, they're horrible, they're horrific, that sometimes we're surprised going, man, look at actually what they did. They've actually done something very noble. They've actually done something very self-sacrificial. wasn't expecting that from a bad person. We realize that there's a lot more kind of gray here. Are people simply good or bad? Or in each of us, is there the potential, the capability to be, as we'd like to think, good moral, upright, you know, good contributing members of society? Here we are, here in, in Ottawa, shaping our city, shaping the world here from Ottawa. But we also know that there are times when we are capable of doing bad things ourselves, even wicked things ourselves. And if we're honest with each other, we all have experiences of this. And we, we can all think of times in our lives where we've hurt somebody else, intentionally or not. We can all think of times in our lives when we've been hurt by people that we consider to be good people. Maybe you still consider them to be good, but you just know in that moment that they slipped up, that something was said or done that was hurtful for you or for somebody else that you know. These things can shape our lives. So it's not 
It's too easy just to say, well, there are good people and, and, and there are bad people. We all have something of this inside of us. There seems to be, across all of humanity, no matter how good we think people might be, the, the capability, the potential for wickedness, the potential for evil. So where does it all come from? Where does it all come from? Well, the Bible in Proverbs hits it right on, I was going to say right on the head, hits it right on the heart. It says this in Proverbs 4.23. It says, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. If you look at other translations of Proverbs 4.23, they're all saying the exact same thing is, is, is good and evil. All these things that we do and the way that we think of it, it all flows from the heart, from the human heart. That is the root of all of it. So in Proverbs, where we're receiving this instruction, keep your heart, guard it, protect it, because that's what life flows from, life good or bad. It all flows from the heart. And here's the thing, humanity, all of humanity, every one of us in this room, every one of us in this building, in our city, in our nation, in our world, humanity, all of it, has a heart problem. This is a problem that affects each and every one of us. I found it so refreshing this past week, I was reading about some of the political events happening. As many of you know, there was a very, well, a couple this week, actually, but the first prominent uh, political resignation that happened, uh, the person's political opponent earlier this week was being asked about that. And they could have seized on an opportunity to say, well, that happens in that party, and good for them for resigning, and that's evil, and that's wicked. The line that she actually said was, this is a human problem. I thought, well done. This isn't a political thing. This isn't a conservative, liberal, NDP, black, white, rich, poor, any other label that you want to give it. This is a human thing. And she wasn't speaking from a faith perspective that I'm aware of, but she's hitting on something that this book has been saying since the beginning of time, since the first words were written in it. Humanity has a heart problem. Friends, you have a heart problem. And I, as your pastor, as your church leader, I have a heart problem. And this book, and the God that this book is pointing us towards and letting us know about, is very concerned with the heart. In fact, he even says it at one stage, man looks on the outward appearance. And don't we? Check your social media feed. Man really looks on the outward appearance. We're masters of the outward appearance. We've talked about that over the past couple weeks. But God looks on the heart. Now, the reason I'm pressing this point this morning, the reason I'm wanting to gather us all to that place of of recognizing that all of humanity has a heart problem is because we can approach these verses in Mark chapter 11 and Mark chapter 12 and read about what's going on with the religious leaders in Jesus' day and think, well, they're bad people. They're the ones that have the heart problem. And I grew up in Sunday school. I grew up in a, very much in a Canadian Christian culture, and that's the way that I was taught. I remember in Sunday school, there was a song, I'm not singing Britney Spears to you this morning, and I'm not going to sing this Sunday school song to you this morning, but the song went, I don't want to be a Pharisee. I don't want to be a Pharisee, because they're not fair, you see. I don't want to be a Pharisee. I mean, that is lyrical genius, first off. And then the next line is, I don't want to be a Sadducee which is another class of the religious leaders. They're kind of more governmental. I don't want to be a Sadducee. I don't want to be a Sadducee because they're so sad, you see. No, I don't want to be a Sadducee. I just want to be a sheep. Should we worship now? I just want to be a sheep, you know? But that's what I was taught growing up. 
I don't want to be like those guys because they're the bad ones. They're the ones that rejected Jesus. And we can approach these verses with that sort of thinking in mind, thinking, oh, look how evil those religious leaders are. Look how bad they are. Look how much their hearts are not warm towards Jesus. Look at their rejection of Jesus. Look at their crucifying of Jesus. They're bad. But I'm not bad. If I had been in that situation, I wouldn't have done that. Well, I'm not so sure. The point of this text, the point of these verses, is not to lead us to a frame of mind where we think, look at those religious leaders. They're so evil. Good thing we're not like them. We're totally missing it if that's the way that we approach it. Jesus is also talking about us in these verses. So let's set the scene a little bit. Jesus goes back to the temple. If you've been following us in our story through Mark, you know this is now in a very, very brief period of time, likely only a couple of days. This is the third time that Jesus is going into the temple now. First time, really brief visit after his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. The next day he goes in, he sees things going on that are interrupting prayer and worship in the temple And he says, this is my father's house. This is supposed to be for prayer and for worship. You've turned it into a den of robbers. And he flips over the tables of the money changers, coins rolling everywhere on the floor. John's gospel tells us that he gets a whip and he chases the animals out because that area was supposed to be for prayer and for worship. And now for a third time, Jesus goes in again. I mean, Jesus is no coward. He is no coward. He's going right to the very heart of where Jewish culture is set from, where the culture of that whole region is set from. He's going in again. There's going to be another conflict. He's no coward at all. This time Jesus goes in and the religious leaders come up to him and they ask him a question. They say, by whose authority are you doing these things? Where do you get the authority to do the stuff that you do? We've heard about these miracles. We've seen you come in and rearrange the furniture here. Pretty bold move. By whose authority are you doing these things? Jesus then swings it around. He says, tell you what, I'll answer your question if you answer mine. The authority of John, my cousin, John the Baptist, who lost his head because he followed Jesus, his authority, where did that come from? Come from God or that come from man? And then there's this little kind of conference that happens over off to the side. Well, we don't really know what to say here. If we say that it came from God, Jesus is going to ask us, well, then why were you not baptized by John? If if his authority came from God, why didn't you obey? Why didn't you follow it? But But if we say that his authority came from man, Jesus's followers, many of whom are here in the temple with him, if we say, well, no, it just came from man, it's, it's not to be treated like it came from God, they're going to be furious because they used to follow John. <laughs> so what do they say to Jesus? Well, they act cowardly. They completely uh, just fudge it, and they say, well, we don't know. We don't know. Well, Jesus says, well, fine. Well, I'm not going to answer your question then. Now, at that stage already, the religious leaders would have been very upset very angry because they were kind of already set in their place. And Jesus is coming in. And, he's, and if you're listening to this exchange or reading the exchange, it's Jesus saying, look, I'm, I don't need to take marching orders from you. You want to ask me a question? Fine, I'm going to ask you a question. You want to try to outsmart me? You want to outclever me? Is that clever even an expression? Proof that I would not be there in that scene. But fine, you want to do that? You want to try to kind of take me on that way? Well, let me ask you a question of my own. And then Jesus, after that exchange, you can imagine people around kind of watching this. It's interesting, the scene that's happening. Mark tells us that this is all happening while people, while they're walking around the temple. 
They're walking around the temple, and they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. We can have this, we can imagine this setting sort of like this some 2,000 years ago, where Jesus is standing up and people are, you know, seated in nice, neat rows, and he's teaching them. That's not what it would have looked like. The temple was designed for the teaching rabbis to, to be able to slowly pace their way around the courtyards, and they would walk together. And Jesus' followers would have been there with him, walking with him. And that's the the setting that that the religious leaders walk in on, and they see this happening. So the religious leaders kind of just kind of come in the crowd. And then they're walking there with Jesus, and this dialogue is happening. And you can imagine the others in the crowd hearing this exchange and going, whoa, whoa, what's Jesus going to do next? Well, what does Jesus do next? Jesus gives a parable, the parable of the tenants. Jesus tells his followers a parable, and he tells it with the religious leaders there within earshot. Jesus knows that they're within earshot. He knows that they're going to hear it themselves. Now, I know I've already read the parable this morning. We do our preaching in this church from the ESV, the English Standard Version. But I want to read the parable quickly again to you from the NLT, the New Living Translation. The wording is slightly different. And I want to read it from a different translation because it could be that different things will pop out to you. If there are things that you're curious about in Scripture, in many cases, I would encourage you to read it in a number of translations to see what God says to you in that. But as a church, we do all of our preaching through the ESV, but we still do certainly find other translations helpful as resources. So from the NLT, this is what it says. Then Jesus began teaching them with stories. A man planted a vineyard. He built a wall around it, dug a pit for pressing out the grape juice, and built a lookout tower. Then he leased the vineyard to tenant farmers and moved to another country. And at the time of the grape harvest, he sent one of his servants to collect his share of the crop. But the farmers grabbed the servant, beat him up, and sent him back empty-handed. The owner then sent another servant, but they insulted him and beat him over the head. The next servant he sent was killed. Others he sent were either beaten or killed until there was only one left his son, whom he loved dearly. The owner finally sent him, thinking, surely they will respect my son. So the tenant farmer said to one another, here comes the heir to the estate. Let's kill him and get the estate for ourselves. So they grabbed him and murdered him and threw his body out of the vineyard. Now, many of Jesus' parables are known for being a little bit cryptic. If you're familiar with Jesus' parables, some of them end with that strange little saying, let him who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus doesn't end this one with let him who has ears to hear, let him hear. They would have all got it. They would have all realized, whoa, whoa, look at what Jesus is saying here. This parable was about as subtle as a hip check into the other team's bench, all right? If you're a hockey fan, you know what I'm talking about. That gets played over and over and over, and everybody's like, whoa. That's about how much subtlety this parable had. What's going on in this parable? Well, the vineyard represents Israel. God, through the Old Testament prophets earlier in the Bible, speaks about Israel as a vineyard, and God as the gardener. And the tower that we read about that was built, that was an expression of the owner, the landowner, taking great pride in the land. It was also an expression of wealth, but also of protection. In those days, if you had a lot of money and you wanted to protect your estate, you would build the tower. That's what you would do. So the vineyard represents Israel. The tenants are, in that case, the religious leaders 
in Israel. They're the ones who have been entrusted with the care of the vineyard. They're the ones who are supposed to be responsible for making sure that it is growing well, that things are happening well. And as we keep reading along in the parable, good news, the vineyard does what a vineyard is supposed to do. It grows grapes. We read that. It grows grapes. There's some fruit. Excellent. That's exactly what a vineyard is supposed to do. But then we read that the landlord, the landowner, comes and, and or sends someone, rather, and he wants to have a share of the crops. Now, let me ask you this. Is that fair? It's absolutely fair. He owns the land. It's absolutely fair that the landlord can send somebody and say, I, I want a portion of the crops. This is mine. I'm, I'm the landlord. I'm the land owner. But as we read through the parable, we read that the people that are sent are not, to put it mildly, received very well. When the season came, this is from the ESV now, he sent a servant to the tenants to get some of the fruit, and they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. That's one. And again, two, he sent another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. Three, he sent another, and him they killed, and they did with many others. He still had one other. ESE uses the word beloved, a beloved son. Now that word is a loaded word, isn't it? A beloved son. Jesus, when he's baptized by John, his cousin, I was telling you about a few minutes ago, comes up out of the water. There's this booming voice from heaven. It's God the Father speaking over my son, over his son. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. When we read that word beloved in this parable, who is being referred to in this case? We know, don't we? We know that this is Jesus. The landlord, who is also a father, sends his beloved son. Surely they will respect my son. And what's the fate of the son that they send? They took him and killed him. Threw him out of the vineyard. It can be easy for us to fall into this line of thinking where we think that God the Father, as we're reading through the Old Testament, he's a pretty angry God, isn't he? A lot of blood, a whole lot of blood in the Old Testament. A lot of animals dying, a lot of people dying. God, that God must be a pretty angry God. But then Jesus comes, and suddenly God the Father chills out a bit, and then he is happy. He seems to have, whatever the issue was before, it seems to have been sorted. Have you ever been tempted to think that? you ever kind of fallen into that line of thinking that the God the Father in the Old Testament is angry God, but Jesus, you know, God the Son is happy God? I want us to make sure that we don't miss just how relentless the landlord slash father is here. So let's look at the behavior of the father, the landlord, and he has his vineyard and is growing, and he wants a portion of the crops which are rightfully his he sends one servant, is beaten, sent on his way, sends a second one, same thing. Another one is killed. Many others are killed. And eventually he sends his son. Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. What would you do if you were the landlord and you sent one servant to collect something, a portion even, of what was rightfully yours and your employee was beaten, mocked, sent on their way. The first one, I know what I would do. I'd send in the troops. 
I'd be like, whatever resources are available to me, in you go. Those tenants, they're not abiding by the lease. They're trying to claim this for themselves. It's not theirs. It's mine. Go in and sort it out. Those guys, they're gone. Well, the father doesn't do that. He sends in a second and a third. One is killed. Others are killed. And finally, grace upon grace upon grace upon grace, in the ultimate expression of grace, he sends his beloved son. Knowing that all of the others that he has sent, or many of the others, have been killed. Think of the cost to the father of sending his son. Whew, they've killed the other ones, many of them at least. I just, I want to reason with them. I will send my son. Surely they will respect my son. What is the response of the tenants? What do they say? Here comes the heir to the estate. Let's kill him and get the estate for ourselves. That's the NLT. Here comes the heir to the estate. Let's kill him and get the estate for ourselves. And there it is. A single line that sums up the heart problem of humanity. Let's kill him and have the estate for ourselves. They're trying to take a position that was never theirs. And they try to take it by violence, by killing the son. It's interesting that this parable has to do with the vineyard. If you're familiar with the story of the Bible, where does it all start? It all starts in a garden. Think way back to Genesis 3, verse 5. Adam and Eve are placed in this garden And they're given one command. We looked at this a little bit last week. They're given one command. Enjoy the entire garden. It's all here for your enjoyment. The only command that I'm giving to you is do not eat the fruit of that tree. Mm, All right. Sounds like a pretty good deal. Why that tree? Well, if there wasn't any opportunity for them to obey or disobey God, to choose on their own, they would have been created essentially as robots without the freedom to choose. That wouldn't have been an act of love. But God is a loving father. He wants to give his children freedom to choose, including the freedom to choose whether or not they'll even trust him and believe him. And the serpent comes and sells Adam and Eve a lie. And in Genesis chapter 3, verse 5, we read this, part of what the serpent says about the fruit that God had told them not to eat. The serpent's speaking about it. Genesis 3, verse 5. For God knows that when you eat of it, Your eyes will be opened, and listen to this. Listen to these next few words. Your eyes will be opened, and what? And you will be like God. You will be like God. And then in the parable of the tenants, that's exactly what we see happening all over again. Let's kill him. Here comes the heir to the estate. Let's kill him, and it will be ours. We will be like the landowner. It will be ours ours. And humanity, you and, my, you and me included, we have been doing it ever since. Ever since. This is what we do. We either worship God as the one true God or we try to be like God ourselves. As created beings, putting ourselves in a position that was never ours to put ourselves in. We can't. How can created beings, just even by the very nature of that term, be like the creator? It's illogical. It's impossible But this is what sin does to us. It blinds us. It blinds us. 
It tricks us into thinking as created beings that we can be like the creator. We're made in his image. There are parts of who God is and his character that he's put into humanity, but sin has corrupted it. But even that in its purest form, Adam and Eve were not absolutely equal to God. They were still created beings, a son and daughter that he loved dearly. But that's very different to being God yourself. Sin is an evil only because it makes us want to disobey God. It's evil because it fools us into thinking that we can be God. Nothing could be further from the truth. And then to make this even clearer, again, you can imagine the silence that's happening around that scene. Jesus is giving this parable, right? Everybody's like, whoa, whoa. To make it even clearer, what does Jesus say towards the end of it? He asks a question, what will the owner of the vineyard do? not really in parable mode anymore. He's then kind of speaking to the, the people just asking them a question, but of audience participation now. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He doesn't even give them a chance to answer the question. Jesus says this, he will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. I've been wrestling with this text this week. I love this church. I love this city. If you're in here this morning and you do not know Jesus, we love that you are here. We love that you are here. But we believe this book. And we believe what this book says about God being a gracious God, full of grace, full of mercy, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. We also believe that he's a God of justice. And that there is coming a day when you will have to give a reckoning for the ways that you have claimed to be God yourself and that I have claimed to be God myself. And in that day, what will either be said to you about the penalty that you deserve is one of two things. One is that it was put on Jesus because you placed your faith in him and he bore the penalty for you and you will not receive that penalty. God is still just because the penalty went on his son or because you did not place your faith in Jesus, that penalty will be served on you. And you eternally will be destroyed. Those of you right now that think that preaching is easy, preaching is not easy. Friends, this is the gospel. God has made a way for us to not have to receive the penalty on ourselves. He sent his beloved son, just as the landlord did in the parable. When the beloved son comes, what will you do? Will you be like one of the ones who says, let's kill him. Let's try to be like God ourselves." Or will you go, my goodness, look at all the things that God has said me, all of the examples of grace and mercy that he has shown me, and, and he sent his son? He must really want me to get this. I'm going to trust in the son. <laughs> I'm going to trust in the son. I'm not going to try to steal what is not mine. It's never mine to begin with. And here's the incredible thing about the gospel, as if this isn't incredible enough. Not only is the penalty that you and I deserve put on Jesus and we're forgiven of our sin, not only does that happen, but we're also adopted into the family of God. We become brothers or sisters to the beloved son. It's not just, well, okay, whew, good thing you dodged that bullet. Now go on living your Christian life. That's, there's not much good news in that. 
And it's nice that you don't get the penalty, but that's not being saved into anything, really. But it's not only is the penalty not yours, but here is a great inheritance that is now yours because you are in Christ. The vineyard now belongs to you. (laughs) What a gospel. (laughs) What a gospel. Are you understanding the immeasurable depths of the grace of God?